0: Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.
1: You know, I wish there was an an easy way to to apply it, you know, a formula or or a general approach. Um, The only thing I can say, as I said before, is that when I see people who seem to me contented in their lives, they had this leap at some point where they didn't know where the bottom was, mm-hmm. you know, it was, and it was dark. Um, and, uh, it's, it's the scariest thing in the world. Uh, but I just, I think it's, I think it's necessary a lot of the times and and you, you do have to erase things, you know, and you have to, you have to go counter to societal expectations often. Uh, and sometimes you have to go counter to your own expectations. Mm-hmm. Things you told yourself would make you happy, you know, your whole life suddenly, Maybe they don't make you happy anymore. Maybe it's not enough, and, and you have to be honest about it.
0: I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500 episode
2: archive at unmistakablecreative.com.
0: They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit
3: plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss.
0: As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Robert, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you, Serena. It's an honor to be with you. Yeah, my pleasure. So, you know, I am really excited to have you here for several reasons. Um, you know, one, Ryan Holiday referred you, and when he described your story and your journey, I thought, wow, what parallels, uh, you know, we have in our lives. So on that note, can you tell us a bit about yourself, your story, your journey, your background, and how that has brought you to everything that you're up to in the world today?
1: Yeah, I you know, I grew up in Chicago, and for the first several years of my life, um, I traveled with my dad, who was a traveling salesman. He owned a motorcycle paints and lubricants business, and he was on the road nine or 10 months out of the year. And so in order for um, me not to feel fatherless, he and my mom agreed that I should go with him on some of these road trips, a lot of them. And so by the time I was eight years old, I probably had been to the uh, all, continent, all 48 of the continental United States several times, you know, all by car. And uh, there was a lot of storytelling going on in the car. My dad was a phenomenal storyteller. So That formed a big part of my early life, but there was also um, a good bit of dysfunction going in my house uh, at home. And uh, even though people suspected I might be um, capable or smart, uh, I had a very difficult time in school. And so uh, in high school, I I remember getting my class rank in junior year, and I was ranked number 606 out of 660 in the school. I had uh, F's and D's all over my transcript. And we were forced to get a recommendation by our uh, career counselors. And uh, the guy recommended that I don't even attempt to go to college or even try a two-year college. Uh, instead, he recommended that I go to the Peace Corps and hope for the best. So it was very discouraging for me early on. Uh, no one really saw very many good things ahead for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, at that point, um All I had really going for me was a kind of belief in myself that things would get better once I got out on my own. Um, And I didn't really know how that would happen, where it would happen, why it might happen, just that uh, if I got another chance, uh, I could do better. Uh, The funny thing was, Sereni, that I wasn't doing anything bad uh, in my family or in life. I wasn't smoking or drinking or missing school at all. I just was in pain, and I, I was kind of lonely uh, in this very uh, wealthy suburb that we had moved to when, when I entered high school. And so uh, I didn't really know what to do or how to do it, and I was quite um, desperate in certain ways uh, and just hoped for the best. Uh, no, no college would let me in. Um, everybody else's safety schools, you know, the, the one or two they'd apply to just in case the worst possible results happened, those were my primary applications, and nobody let me in. So I was in big trouble. Um, I just got one lucky break when I was 17, and that's that uh, the one activity I was involved in, in all of my high school years, which was writing for the school newspaper, got some attention from somebody at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. And they offered me a very small uh, check, uh, $300 for a couple articles I had written. But that gave me enough of an opening where I wrote them a letter and said, "Uh, look, um, my Home life hasn't been uh, very happy. Uh, this has uh, been a, a hurtful time for me, and I haven't been able to concentrate on school. But if you give me uh, probation, I'd heard about probation. You know, if you give me probation, um, I'm sure I can come through. And they did. That was the first chance someone ever really gave me, and I made the best of it. So that's how things kind of started for me.
0: All right, so where let's keep going further. Cause I know I have a ton of questions, but I want to keep going, uh, you know, further into where the journey leads, uh, you know, and into adult life.
1: Well, when I got to Wisconsin um, and discovered that uh, separate from a house where there was a lot of dysfunction, I could kind of focus on things. And also because I had gotten a lot of the adventure out of my system, I had done some crazy things in high school. I became a ticket broker for rock concerts where I was selling thousands of dollars of rock concert tickets a week. I was a vendor at the major Chicago sports events and rock concerts. I even went into business selling t-shirts at uh, rock concerts that I made myself. I was sued for $100,000 by cheap trick when I was 15 years old <laughs> uh, and arrested and put in paddy wagons. So I'd been through a lot. Uh, again, never never drank a beer, never smoked a joint, but had these incredible adventures. So by the time I did get to college, and everybody was starting to find their own adventures for the first time. I was kind of like an old soul at that point, and I was able to focus on school, so I did really well. So instead of getting D's and F's, I was getting A's and A pluses. So all that worked out really well for me. Um, but when it came time to graduate, like many people, I didn't know what to do, and and a lot of people at that time we're looking at law school. It was a great opportunity then. Um, lawyers were making huge increases in uh, salaries when they graduated from law school. It was three years commitment instead of eight or 10 years like it was to become a doctor. So because I didn't know any better and because people suggested to me, you know, you'd be a good lawyer, you like words, you like arguing, uh, I applied to law school and I got into Harvard Law School. Never thought about being a lawyer, never thought about going to law school, but this big, thick packet that came from Harvard Law School really caught my attention. Uh, it didn't do enough to convince me to go, but smart people that I knew told me, you should go anyway, even if you don't know what it's about, even if you have no interest in being a lawyer, because a degree from Harvard Law School will open any door you want for you. So kind of on that blind faith, uh, I leaped in and found myself in Cambridge, a first-year law student at Harvard Law School. And I would say, serenely within... I don't know, 36 hours would be generous, uh, but let's go for it. Within 36 hours, I knew I made a horrendous mistake. It was, uh, I, I just could tell even before class, you know, classes started that this was not the place for me, that this was uh, a place where uh, the people who were going to be happiest and most content and at, p- at peace with themselves were people who dotted every I and crossed every T and for whom um, order and Uh, and carefulness uh, ruled the day. And, uh, you know, I tried to talk myself out of it. No, that's, you know, I'm prejudging everything. How can you tell from one day? So, you know, I gave it a week and I gave it two weeks and it just, I became more and more convinced of it. But I kept in mind what people told me, you got to get the degree because that will open doors for you no matter what. And so I stuck it out, you know, i stuck it out there and became a, you know, a Harvard educated lawyer. And, That's where the disaster really began. (laughs) So, you know, I can tell you that uh, when I graduated, I, you know, I thought this is really not the job for me. I do not want to become a big firm lawyer. But I had not had any money in my life up to that point. I had really maxed out on ramen noodles and peanut butter sandwiches. And I just dreamed of being able to afford, you know, pepperoni on my pizzas So I took a job as a big firm lawyer in Chicago for more money than my dad, I think, ever made. And uh, instantly, I was even more miserable on the job than I was in law school. I was making a ton of money, and I was just desperately, profoundly unhappy. Everything they asked me to do was completely against my DNA, not even on a moral level, but just the idea that I had to care about these leases for these retail companies or that I had to figure out a franchisee's um, basic concerns in their agreements with McDonald's. Uh, I just didn't care, and I tried to whip myself into shape. I tried to care. I begged myself to care. I forced myself, but nothing worked, and I just found myself really in a living hell and really with no idea what to do next. At, yes, and, and at that point, um, I think – I had the luckiest break of them all, which was that I was so desperately unhappy and so um, lost uh, with you know for what to do with the rest of my life, meaningfully what to do with the rest of my life. I mean, I was no different than many of my friends I graduated with from law school. I wasn't the only unhappy one. In fact, there were, it was really hard to find anyone who felt really positive about his or her future as a lawyer. But the thing I had going for me, the one advantage I had was I was a little more unhappy than the rest of them. And that's what became the turning point in the rest of my life. Okay. So keep going. I'm I'm
0: still interested. Like I said, I've got a list of questions, but I want you to keep going until it brings you up to where we're at.
1: So I'm in this sort of living hell in this beautiful offices in downtown Chicago being asked to do these assignments that I just didn't care about. And I was bad at it. And I thought, how am I going to live the next 50 years hating my job and being bad at it? That was not a good combination and not a prescription for a happy life. I had all kinds of stuff that I had dreamed of having, a BMW, you know, a $3,000 bicycle, uh, you know, a $2,000 stereo, and all of it just was being used to numb the pain to get me into the next day. I was never a person who used alcohol or drugs or anything. I'm, you know, I'm as straight-laced as they come, but I bought as much junk as I could to just distract myself from my situation and nothing worked. I just saw 50 long, long years ahead of me and thought, I can't do this. I have to do something uh, meaningful, even if I don't make any money at it, because the money was not doing it for me. I had the money finally and it just didn't it didn't help. So but what what do I do at this point? You know, I'd spent all this money and all this time getting this fancy degree and I had no idea what I wanted to do with it. So kind of to just um, help myself through the nights, you know, the Monday nights and the Tuesday nights, and worst of all, the Sunday nights, I started to write these short stories at home, true stories about my remembrances of the days taking road trips with my dad and telling stories with him, or going to Northeastern Illinois University basketball games and watching a great local player, Uh, just anything that um, seemed to remind me of the past, And an incredible thing happened while I was writing those stories. Time moved very, very quickly. You know, I would write a story and say, wow, I can't believe I wrote a story in 25 minutes. And I'd look up at the clock, and it had been three hours. And at the law job, things were just the opposite. Time moved almost backward for me. So I thought, wow, uh, I love writing. This is something nice. And I'd never done any writing, never took a class, never read a book, nothing, uh, except for those few you know, high school little rock concert reviews that I did. So I thought, you know what? I'm going to do whatever it takes, whatever uh, I have to do to make it happen. I'm going to become a writer. And I decided to send out uh, resumes to any newspaper within a hundred mile radius of Chicago. It didn't matter how big or how small. I'd start with the Chicago Tribune and the Sun-Times, and I would go to whatever local tiny papers there were, anything, and just say, give me a job. Nobody answered me except for one person. And that was a guy named Bill 80, who was the sports editor at the Chicago Sun-Times. And he said, I don't have anything for you, but I have the name of somebody who uh, is also a suffering lawyer who wrote to me. And I just wouldn't let him off the line. And uh, Bill was a really nice guy and a really smart guy and an interested, curious man. And I finally persuaded him to let me come into the Sun-Times to answer some phones and do a little data entry. But the thing he told me was to keep my eyes and my ears open because at the sun Times somebody would blow a deadline at some point or not show up for work or maybe come in drunk. And then he might give me a chance, a small opportunity. But if I took the most, made the most of the opportunity and did a good job, maybe he'd give me another chance. And that's exactly what happened, Serene. I went into the sun times one Friday evening and uh, I had just you know finished work uh, as a lawyer. And I walked over there in my suit and my wingtips and there in the sports department, people were standing there in jeans and T-shirts, whipping around Nerf footballs, swearing, you know, yelling at each other. I saw legendary writers walking back and forth down the hallway who I'd read since I was a boy. And I was just absolutely in heaven. I couldn't believe that you could show up for work somewhere and write and express yourself about something you loved and someone might pay you for it. And I thought, I'm going to do anything I can to stay here. And that's exactly what I did. I, I became a data entry clerk for about a year and a half. I answered phones and typed in high school football scores and race horse racing results and whatever it took to stay there. And just like Bill told me, little chances came up and I did everything I could. I was so grateful for him that I just put my entire heart and soul into it. And more chances developed and more and more, and then I was off to the races. I had, a, I got a full-time job there as a writer uh, in sports and then in features. I became the rock music critic there and then the Sunday features writer, and then things just kind of exploded for me. I went on to Chicago Magazine and then became a contributing editor at Esquire Magazine and then a book writer, and that's where I am today. Wow. Okay. Now I know
0: why Ryan referred uh, you to me because this is just a beautiful story full of so many things that I want to tease apart and really kind of dig deep into. Uh, you know, I, I want to start at the very beginning of the story. Uh, you know, with your childhood and this relationship with your father, uh, and traveling and and telling all these stories. What I'm really interested in is how that relationship with your father um, and all those stories that were exchanged. You know, during all this travel shaped your worldview and your perspectives and how that sort of impacted the journey later on?
1: Well, on several levels, it was the most important thing that ever happened to me. I mean, on the most basic level, I had this unbelievable quality time with this beautiful man who uh, truly loved me and and truly wanted to spend time with me. So at that point, no matter what happened after that, just the fact that someone loved me and wanted to be with me uh, and cared about what I said uh, was just it's so absolutely fundamental um you know to to feeling good about myself and feeling like i i love the world but um beyond that uh here's a guy who traveled the world he had a um a tough business this you know sometimes his business didn't make anything and sometimes it made enough that we we had a good year but it was unpredictable but he had to work it all himself it's a motorcycle paints and lubricants business and this was a A beautiful guy. He was um, a refined guy. He really had no natural interest in motorcycles and certainly none in paints and lubricants, but it was a business he found himself in after owning a copper mine in Mexico after college graduation. He really was an interesting guy. So he would take me on the road and we would make calls. So we weren't seeing the beautiful parts of cities. We were going into the industrial sections and seeing um, rough and tumble men talk about life and talk about motorcycles and the road and he would sell these guys and he was an incredible salesman but not in a pushy way just in a real genuine uh low key way but there were long stretches between these stops sometimes we drive for 15 hours in a day and in those days there's no satellite radio or anything it's only so many times you can listen to the don mclean american pie eight track tape And you start telling stories. And this guy was the best storyteller in the world. And he would tell mostly true stories, stories about his life and about his past, and some made-up stories also. But he really knew how to um, develop characters and to build suspense and not tell you too much up front. And I just listened. And he listened to me. And so in order to spend time with each other on these long stretches, you would tell stories. And that really kind of seeped into my bloodstream. So you know, down the down the road years later, when it came time for me to decide I'm gonna tell stories for a living, you know, a lot of people told me that's not possible. You know, you never took a class, you don't read all that much, you're not a, you know, you you are not a journal keeper. And all the the writers people seemed to know were compulsive readers and compulsive writers, and they'd been taking classes and workshops and showing up in Iowa and all kinds of places for you know, almost seemed like for their whole lives. And I had never never done any of that, but I had spent time with a great storyteller. And if and if he had an equal, my mom was his equal. So even at home, I would hear these unbelievable stories. And I just grew up around people who were very observant and very sensitive to life. Both of my parents noticed everything. And as I get older and and find myself writing for a living, that's what I think I notice the most is that really good storytellers are people who notice the most. And and that's I think what I learned most from being around them.
0: Mm. I love this. I mean, there's so much here, uh, especially because I think you and I share this love for story in common. I mean, that's really kind of what ties unmistakable creative together. Uh, One of the things that's interesting to me is looking at your father, who's this incredibly hardworking salesman. And I'm really curious if that sort of work ethic has had an impact on your life. And one of the things that I frustrates me when I see people who have ambitious creative projects is they want to do something of great significance but the work ethic doesn't match up and i'd really one like to hear you know how that work ethic influenced you and two, if they don't have the work ethic is that something that can be cultivated or do you think people are just born with that
1: yeah that's such a good question I don't know that anyone's ever asked me that before but you know certainly watching my dad work the roads and work in a you know a factory uh, and really have to bust his ass, uh, every single day just to, you know, so our family could get by really had a, a big impact on me because he did, even though he was a very sensitive guy and a, and a very cultured guy, a refined guy in many ways, he didn't have the time or the luxury of being able to be, uh, an artiste about anything. He had to make a living and it was really hard to make a living. And, uh, most of all, both he and my mom appreciated the feeling that came from really, killing yourself to do something in an excellent way. And so later on, when I got lucky enough to get a chance to be a writer and observe other writers, I would notice that sometimes other writers, even, you know, really, really excellent writers seemed to be very, um, some of them, not all by any means, but some of them seemed to be um, too much of an artiste, you know, that they, they were prima donnas about certain things and about life. And I just, I didn't relate to that. I always thought um, you you have to bust your ass on these things uh, because uh, I had seen you know my my own dad do that, and it wouldn't have made any sense for him to have you know folded his arms and turned his nose up at anything. It was too tough a life he was living, and too tough a business. The the competitors were ready to kill you in that business. You know, the minute you took a a breath. So I felt lucky to grow up watching a guy really you know get out on the road and and. And break his his butt to do it. Hmm. Let's do this. Let's talk about this period in high school um,
0: where you feel incredibly discouraged, but yet at the same time there's some level of belief that is keeping you going. I'm I'm wondering, and I'm even you know struggling to come up with a question here because I know there's something there. How you maintain the balance between those two things, this you know, sense of discouragement, but also believing, and then eventually letting that belief take over enough that the discouragement goes away,
1: if that makes sense. Absolutely. Um, I had been told most of my life at home that I was smart and that um, anything was possible for me if I worked hard enough for it. It turns out that there were certain things in, in our home that weren't going right for a lot of the years I was growing up. And so it became very difficult. Uh, There were times that, um, I did truly doubt myself. I mean, I had such bad results in high school and such discouraging reports that, uh, you know, I, I, had to start wondering who am I really? And are the nice things that people used to say to me when I was a little boy, was that just BS, you know, that people say to little kids to make them feel good because Nobody seemed to have any kind of uh, hope for me at all. Um, But the one thing that kept me going was that I I could see that in the things that I was doing, that I was trying at, like selling rock concert tickets or even being a vendor at the Bears games and Cubs games and White Sox games, that if I tried hard at something and put my mind to it, I was successful at it. Now, I didn't understand why school was so painful for me, and why I was getting in so many fist fistfights uh, there, and why I couldn't just connect. Um, but I had some kind of feeling like I wasn't doing everything I could or should be doing in school. And so it wasn't appropriate yet to write me off, even though others, professionals even, uh, had already written me off. I just thought, let me try first and have a, at least a, a shot at this. And then if I fail, I'll believe it. But um, I just didn't think that I was, uh, had it worked out in life enough to, to have been failed yet in the way they were failing me in school. So I thought someday I'll get the chance. Someday I'll, I'll have a chance to prove myself. And then if I screw up, I'll, I'll believe I'm a screw up. But until then, I'm going to suspend you know, judgment.
2: Hmm. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable.
0: how in our own lives do we find that one thing that keeps us going and suspend judgment long enough so that it leads us to where we could ultimately go?
1: Well, that's, that's a question that uh, I think is central to the lives of so many people. And I can only tell you this, I don't have any magic formula or, or any special insight. I can only tell you what I've observed in my experience. And that is that the people who seem to have found themselves or seem to have arrived at a place where they're content with what they're doing and with who they are, they all seem, at least in my experience, to have uh, taken a risk at some point along the line to have not settled for something that would have been easier to settle for at the moment. Now, I don't know. you know, it, it, That seems to apply across the board to a lot of people I know. But the ones who seem happy are the ones who had a sense that even though I'm in a place that I could uh go with right now where I could make a future could make a life whether this is in terms of a, a spouse or a job or just a dream uh, they have a sense that no this isn't quite the right thing for me and I'm willing to experience temporary pain now in in uh, the name of the greater good now I don't know if if I can say anything beyond that except that the happiest people I know all seem to have taken that risk, it's a almost like a a leap into the abyss where you don't know what's coming. It's it's dark. Mm-hmm. And it could be it could be very dark and very very frightening, but it seems to be there in a lot of people who end up um, coming out the other side in a in a good way. It's funny you say that because I honestly think that it's been very
0: hard for me to find one person who has been on this show who hasn't gone through some sort of crucible of sorts you know, it's almost like, you know, a part of the hero's journey, it's
1: necessary in order to get to the other side. I think it's absolutely true. You know, I wish life were easier where, you know, where lucky things happen, and you just seem to have found yourself in a a good situation. And I suppose that happens. It doesn't happen to me. And it doesn't seem to have happened to the people I know. It's, I think, uh, a lot of this is about persistence. Mm -hmm. And a lot of it's about um, having the, the willingness to go through some dark times and some scary times. I just think it's hard enough to find good things in life. It's hard enough to find a good, uh, person to, um, be a romantic partner with. It's hard to find, a, you know, a great job. It's even very, very hard, as you know, to find a good book idea. <laughs> and, and, you know, it just, this thing holds true for writers as much as it does for romantics and, uh, and for career people that, um, sometimes you just have to wait and keep going, even if it scares the hell out of you at the moment.
0: So on that note, let me let me ask you this. Um, you know, I I I've had some very, very difficult moments in life in the last year or so when I I really thought about giving up completely. And and I mentioned this in a previous episode, but how and I have asked this to various people in different forms, how do you pull out of dark times when you're in them? And how do you get whatever gifts are meant to be given from those times?
1: I wish I had a great, simple answer for that. I can only tell you that what I did was keep looking and keep trying. And I think the only halfway decent answer I can give is that if you keep trying and keep looking, you'll know it when you come across it. You know, I never had any intention to go out and become a writer. It never even occurred to me that that could be something that made me happy or that I could make a living at. But uh, with enough attempts, um, something finally clicked. I mean, I tried a lot of things before that. I tried to become an options trader. You know, I tried to, I thought about becoming a psychologist. I I took the GREs. I mean, there was all kinds of attempts and it feels very awkward to keep falling down and not finding it. It, You could easily mistake that for being a failure, uh, for trying and missing, swinging and missing. But I'm a big believer in the big swing and the big miss. You know, I used to read a lot about Babe Ruth and and how the people who watched him said it was as thrilling to watch him strike out as it was to hit a home run. And you see YouTube video of him, and it's it's absolutely true. So I think it's just a matter of uh, trying and being willing to take uh, the pain when it's, when you inevitably um, strike out. Hmm.
0: Let's do this. Let's talk a little bit more about high school. And then I want to start talking about the career later on. But this period of, you know, uh, selling tickets at rock concerts, selling T-shirts, getting sued by cheap tricks, spending time in jail. I'm interested in hearing about all that in more depth and about how all of that has informed the work that you do today.
1: Yeah. So here I was in a, in a brand new high school. We had moved from kind of a middle-class neighborhood to a much more upper-class neighborhood. And I immediately didn't fit in. In fact, I probably didn't fit in there as much as I didn't fit in in law school when I went. It was a culture shock to me. And I just wasn't comfortable with the people or what they were about. Um, I didn't like them. They didn't like me, that's for sure. And uh, it just seemed to me that um, reading about English and history just wasn't, you know, it just didn't do anything for me. But the Rolling Stones were coming to Soldier Field. And I heard kids in my homeroom class saying, oh, if anyone had Rolling Stones tickets, I would pay anything for them. And so I just looked in the newspaper and found an ad for Rolling Stones tickets uh, for a certain price, asked those kids how much they would pay. They were willing to pay a lot more. And that's how I got started being a ticket broker. And the, the feeling I got when I bought these tickets from some very shady source, downtown Chicago, and brought them to my fancy high school and just turned them that fast. I mean, it took me one day and I had gobs of money in my pocket. That just had to be, I was certain of it at age 14, much more interesting than anything they could be pushing in the textbooks at school. And I just thought, I have to do this. It's 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 too much fun and it's really exciting. I, I went into bad neighborhoods to get these tickets and I just kept doing it. and uh, And the thrill of of venturing away from this very safe neighborhood I lived in uh, was fascinating to me. I saw people who weren't exactly like me anymore. You know, which I which you never did in my school. I saw uh, terrible things happen before my eyes. I saw people get beat up and arrested, and I was making money. And so to try to get going in school and say, okay, now I'm going to write a, a report on, you know, on the, you know, the, the Middle Ages or something. Just I, I couldn't I couldn't do it. And, uh, and so uh, and, and also there was a feeling of success um, that was intoxicating doing all that. I started to go uh, sell shirts and, and all kinds of things in these terrible neighborhoods you know and it cul- culminated with me uh, having this brainstorm to do this cheap trick uh, t-shirt sale which, Within an hour I was making thousands of dollars. It was I gotta tell you, Serena, I really had masterminded this whole thing. And then all of a sudden it came crashing down. And for the first time in history, a band cared that you were using their copyrights on mm-hmm. shirts. Before before that, bands were grateful to kids outside their concerts selling shirts with their logo on it because it advertised them, you know, in school the next day and for weeks afterward. Cheap trick happened to care. They filed a federal lawsuit. I was named in the lawsuit. And uh, thrown in in jail and served with this massive thing. My parents had no idea what I was doing. But the excitement of it was just unreal. Uh, To have thousands of dollars in my pocket from an idea that I had created. I came up with the shirt. I came up with the idea, with the place, with the approach. And it all worked. Well, up until the very end, it all worked. So um, these kinds of things, high school could not compete with that. But even more so, the kids in high school couldn't compete with it. And so I just had little patience for them, but I was dying to tell the story of the thing. Only nobody seemed to care at the time, but it was that feeling like, boy, I'd love to tell this story. I just saw some incredible stuff. That's the thing that stuck with me forever and ever after high school. Oh,
0: I love that. Uh, Well, let's do this. Let's talk a little bit about college. Uh, you, You know, one of the things that's really interesting to me is that you go from being 660 out of, you know, such a small, like pretty much at the bottom of your class to straight A's and Harvard Law School. I'm interested in what results in that kind of an identity shift and the way that you see yourself to produce a drastically different result in your life.
1: I'm grateful that at least early in my life, people who I loved and who I trusted told me that I was capable of good things, and that I was a good person. And I think I held on to that a little bit. And I just had this idea that in high school, that even though these people were telling me, you know, you're pretty damn stupid, um, forget about college, don't even think about community college. uh, I just had a feeling that they weren't operating on enough information. And like I said before, I'm going to give myself a chance at some point, even if I have to go to, you know, like a community college here and take one class there's going to be a time where i get out of this situation i had an unhappy home life at the time i'm going to i'm going to get away from home and i'm going to get a minute to breathe and i'll give it a shot and only then if i if i screw it up then and i actually can't do it when i have my full attention on it and i and i feel decently enough about my life that i could focus uh, if i if i screw it up then then okay but i just i got a feeling that when i when i got away from home and and could take a breath Uh, I could do this. And and that's what happened. I got to the University of Wisconsin. I was on a probation. You know, I had to make good in a semester, but away from home and away from the people in my neighborhood who I really didn't like and never liked uh, around, you know, I was in a very kind of cool place. Madison is a really accepting environment. You know, you could be whoever you want and do whatever you want there. And it's pretty much okay with everybody. That whole thing gelled the right way for me. And I just... I had already had these experiences. I had already seen people beat up within an inch of their life at 43rd and Halstead in Chicago. I'd already seen people robbed in front of my eyes. I'd already been in the paddy wagon into jail and been sued in federal court. I, and so, you know, uh, a chance to buy a beer was not uh, distracting to me when I got there. So I had these advantages over a lot of the people who were free for the first time. I'd been free for four years in, in many ways, and I just got to focus and. I was interested in astronomy and I was interested in history. And I just found it to be a pleasure uh, instead of a burden, which it seemed to be for a lot of the people around me. And I just, I was off to the races. I just kicked ass at that point.
0: Hmm. So uh, let me ask you this. I mean, you, you get to Harvard, and within a week, you already realize that something feels completely off here. I'm interested in two things. Why you didn't trust that intuition and why most people don't. Because I've heard other stories on the show of people walking into jobs, knowing in their bones that it's the absolute wrong thing to do and ending up staying there for five years. Or life. Oh yeah,
1: exactly. Yeah, absolutely. I, I would have, you know, I, I'm a believer that you can't really know something the first day or first week. You know, there's there's plenty of times in my life and and I'm sure in everybody's life where at first something seems um, one way and then you give it a chance and it's another way. So I thought it would you know, be quite foolish of me to drop out after a week or a semester just because um, this was the most uh, anal retentive group of people I'd ever been around or could even dream up in my mind. Um, but even after I was sure of it, after I had given it a semester or a year, I really did believe what smart people were telling me, which is just stick this thing out because even if you don't decide to practice law, the degree will open all kinds of doors for you. And that turned out to be very, very good advice. It has opened many, many doors for me. and uh, but, the, but staying there for that long and paying that much for it, that was painful. And I really was right. I mean, I'm, I'm astounded today looking back on it to see how correct I was about uh, not only law school, but about um, the people I was going to law school with. Because the people who liked it the most, who really did belong there, were the people I disliked personally the most, which is not <laughs> which is not a good sign that you're in the right place. And the same was true when I, you know, when I graduated, that uh, the people who seemed really destined to be good lawyers um, were not the kind of people uh, that seemed like me. Mm-hmm. So,
0: you know, let me l- let's talk about this whole idea of abandoning, you know, what you initially saw as a prescription for a happy life, which is, you know, this high powered job. Uh, as an attorney with you know all the toys you could possibly imagine more money than you 've seen in your life, and then leaving it to go do something that is clearly below your education level and clearly a huge gamble. so the question really for me is how do you deal with sort of the societal expectations, the parental expectations that come with taking these kinds of risks? and still take them anyways.
1: Just luck again that I had uh, two parents, especially a mother who said, um, don't you dare throw good money after bad. Um, And you you can't walk around being unhappy. So in my fundamental core, you know, in my family, um, they looked at you like a fool if you just stuck something out simply because you got a degree in it or or invested in it up to this point. They would have thought it was just as dumb to stay in law after I got in it as they would have for me to stay in a, a romantic relationship with someone who turned out not to be right for me, just because I'd been in it for three years already. Mm-hmm. I mean, so so I had very good support in you know from the from the home front, but I also, as I said before, was just lucky in that I hated loss so much that I was absolutely unwilling to go back into it. And uh, you know, the the idea of fifty years in front of me, dreading every day, uh, just was it was untenable to me. I couldn't imagine. Uh, pissing away life like that. Uh, So the best thing that happened to me was being desperately unhappy. Okay.
0: Let me ask you this. Do you think it's absolutely necessary to get to that point of desperate unhappiness in order to cause these kinds of changes in our lives?
1: It might be if the corresponding risk you have to take to get where you want to be is great enough. You know, if, if my dream for myself was, uh, you know, to work at Best Buy, then I don't know that I would have had to get to that level of unhappiness. But if you want to be, let's say, a writer, and you know, being a professional writer is a very, very difficult thing to to accomplish, and the odds are against you, no matter how talented you are. If you want something like that, then it does help to be pretty unhappy um, because then you're willing to get those hundred letters of rejection and not say, "All right, I'm going back." What was I thinking? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think that uh, the best thing I ever did was stay on the the law job more than just a few months because if it had just been a few months and then I started to get the rejections from newspapers and other writing opportunities that I got, I may have gone back again. Hmm. Uh, I think one of the, the best ways to take the risk that seems um, to be common to so many people who are happy is to be unhappy enough to take it. You know, it's interesting you say that because I, I can't help but think
0: about the number of times I have been tempted to call it quits and go find a job instead of do this. And each time I extend the time period for which I'm willing to stick this out, that becomes a less and less likely possibility.
1: Right. That's true. And these things are, are scary. I mean, they really are scary, especially when you look back on them and you realize just how close you might have come to not making it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't begrudge anybody um, their moment when they decide they've had enough, or when it's no longer worth it. I mean, you have to live in the real world, and you have to pay bills, and you have to support children, and all kinds of other real life things. Uh, but again, uh, I don't think I think there's very, very little that's worth it in life to be as desperately unhappy as I got or as many people are on their job or in their in a certain relationship or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, th- almost nothing is worth that. You know, it's funny
0: because I keep thinking about this uh, sentence from Danny Shapiro's book, Still Writing, where she talks about a checklist of dreams we all pretend not to have. And the funny thing is my checklist of dreams that I pretend not to have are largely based on societal expectations. Uh, you know, like, Getting married, having kids, doing all the things that I've seen most of my friends do in our adult lives—that I haven't managed to do yet because I've chosen this—and on the flip side of that, I have temporarily given up this checklist of dreams I pretend not to have for the ones that are destined to come true in the moment.
1: Right. Yeah, that's very interesting. Um, These are hard things to figure out. It's, uh, you know, I wish there was an an easy way to to apply it. You know, a formula or, or a general approach. Um, the only thing I can say, as I said before, is that when I see people who seem to me contented in their lives, they had this leap at some point where they didn't know where the bottom was. Mm-hmm. You know it was and it was dark. Um, and uh, it's it's the scariest thing in the world. Uh, but I just I think it's I think it's necessary a lot of the times. and and you you do have to erase things, you know and you have to you have to go counter to societal expectations often. Uh, and sometimes you have to go counter to your own expectations. Mm-hmm. Things you told yourself would make you happy, you know, your whole life, suddenly, maybe they don't make you happy anymore. Maybe it's not enough. And, and you have to be honest about it.
0: Mm. Well, let's do this. L- let's shift gears a little bit. And let's start talking about the craft of story, because I think that really has kind of been the underlying theme of our entire conversation um, is, you know, mastering the craft of storytelling you've gotten to do it in numerous forms you know you've gotten to do it you know through these stories with your father you have gotten to do it as a journalist and as a book writer and i'm really interested in how each one has sort of shaped how you tell stories and you know what is it that people can take away especially you know in the modern world that we live in this whole process of storytelling is evolving so much but you've kind of come from the foundational pieces of it you know working in newspaper working in journalism writing books so i'm really interested in how all of that um, really, you know, has created your worldview and your thoughts on the craft itself? Well,
1: you know, the craft. I I was very scared when I finally decided, um, to try, you know, to take this risk and try to become a writer because I had never learned anything about writing. I didn't know anything about writing. It it seemed to me that everyone who made their living at writing uh, had been instructed in it and had been thinking about it for a long, long time. And that just scared the hell out of me. I thought it almost disqualified myself for that reason. But I quickly found that, um, in fact, it was an advantage for me because I um, I sounded different than a lot of writers. Um, I didn't have a certain approach set in stone, and what I really only had—the only thing I really had going for me—was this kind of sense of what sounds like a good story as I told it. So. I'm, I'm worried that I can't answer the question in, in, a, in a very effective way because I don't I never really formalized the the approach to structure although I was shocked early on in my career to realize that structure was everything in fact structure was story um, everything w- depended on structure but I never found myself able to say okay I'm gonna uh, you know there's a gonna be a beginning a middle and an end and then there's going to be a conflict at this point and uh, then I'm going to do this later. I, the only thing I had going for me was uh, a, a sense of what it sounded like to hear a good story, uh, because I had heard so many growing up. And when I tried to put it on the page, um, I just asked myself, "Is this the kind of thing that I would like to listen to on a, you know, on a car ride from Chicago to Milwaukee, which is, you know, like a, a ninety-minute ride from downtown Chicago to downtown Milwaukee? Would that could someone tell me this story in that amount of time and keep my interest?" That's really all it was about to me was um, how do I tell this story to someone and not have them be distracted or feel like doing something else or check their email. And if it, I seemed to be doing it, then I was happy with it. If I didn't seem to be doing with it, I tore it up and, and tried again. And that's um, I, I wish I had a better a better answer, but it's always been on instinct to me. Uh, I think from going back, you know, from what I heard as a as a little kid. Oh, I think that's a
0: fabulous answer because it's not a roadmap for how you do it, which I love. It makes you think. Uh, And sort of the first question that came to mind for me when I was hearing that is you mentioned you have this sense for how a good story sounds. Do you think that that sense for how a good story sounds is something that you can cultivate or you can learn, or do you think that people inherently have it?
1: I think both. I think that um, there's something in our DNA, and I and I mean that literally, that there's something in a human in human beings' DNA um, that tunes into story. That we all have an instinct for it, and I think we've survived um, by understanding story and listening to story. So I think it's something that we all um, know intuitively. Because and and the proof of it is anytime you see a story well told people respond to it immediately it almost doesn't matter what your background is or you know what your personality is or what you care about a, a, a well-told story is, is a universal thing so I think on that level we all have it um, the question about getting it out which remains a challenge you know for my whole life and I think many writers lives it doesn't come easily uh, ever but I think that it can be cultivated um First, by listening to great stories, and I'm a, I'm a great believer in hearing storytellers tell stories, uh, which is why I think podcasts are phenomenal, um, but also in, in just uh, hearing yourself tell a story. I, I'm very uh, fond of reading my own stories out loud because they sound much different to me out loud than they do silently. So I think there's a lot in the, in the um, uh, hearing of it. Instead of the reading of it, that makes a big difference as well. I just think reading good stories and especially hearing good stories over and over uh, makes it sink in. Wow. Uh,
0: That really, you know, it's interesting to hear you say that and to hear you say it out loud. It makes me think of how all these stories that I've gotten to listen to firsthand have actually impacted my own ability to tell stories. Because what do I do all day? I listen to people like you tell stories.
1: I think it's inevitable. And you may never realize it because it's not, I don't think it's like a light bulb thing. I think it's something that slowly settles in um, to your, you know, to your system and then it's, it's there. Uh, That's why, you know, I read an article not long ago about these people who write hit songs for, um, you know, current uh, pop artists. And it, it was so um, jarring to me because they had a formula for how they do it. And I can hear this formula, you know, whenever I'm in the you know, the frozen yogurt place and I hear the same songs over and over and I just, you know, they're, they're not my kind of songs. Um, but I think that's that's the worst way to go about it. I think if you hear something, you know, from your heart and you hear other people expressing from their heart and not from a, a formula, not something designed, you know, to, to sell a certain number of albums, but because the person has to say it and because they believe it, if you listen to enough of that stuff, I think it helps you bring it out yourself. I'm, I'm convinced of it. Wow.
0: This has been really, really profound and thought-provoking. So, Robert, you've heard me ask this question a million times since you've listened to some of our interviews. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable?
1: Well, I think that um, if the person is speaking, uh, has connected with uh, who they really are inside and is able to um, transmit that, whether they're talking about themselves or talking about something as mundane as, you know, the building of a highway or something, I think if they're speaking from from the heart, um, it is unmistakable. And uh, it may not appeal to everyone, but to the people to whom it also speaks, they will tell you um, it is, un, you know, unmistakable. Uh, it's hard to get there and it's hard to, um, you know, to trust yourself, but I think if you can, you know, Go from the heart and, and believe that there are others out there who feel the things you feel and observe the things you observe. You'll find them. Wow. Uh,
0: Robert, I have to say, this has probably been my favorite conversation I've had in the last couple of weeks. Uh, I really, really, it's one of those for me that I want to go back and play multiple times. Uh, I can't thank you enough for for taking the time to join us and, and share your story and your journey and your insights with our listeners of The Unmistakable Creative.
1: Oh, Serena! it's been a total privilege for me. I'm a big fan and you know, I can't thank you enough. It's one of the best interviews I've ever done and I, I'm grateful to you for it. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared.